morning. Uh, it's uh, it's a, actually a, a appropriate, I think, that this morning we're going to be talking about Envy, uh, since once again we have the Fifth Sunday Band, and Greg Burke has brought his beautiful Paul Reed Smith. I uh, always love to listen to him play and always love to look at him. Got, got the bird inlays and everything. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, yeah, actually we're going to talk about envy and about how God uses envy. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 11. And, uh, you know, we, uh, if, for those of you who, who are new this morning, we have been going through the book of Romans for the last uh, two and a half years. Did somebody say it felt longer than that? Uh, yeah, uh, two and a half years, roughly, and this year, and by year I mean start kind of fall, winter, spring, we've been in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, which are probably, uh, I, I think, some of the most difficult uh, portions of Scripture. Um, and what I have uh, noticed as we draw to the end of Romans 9 to 11 is that we're starting to reap a harvest from all of the work that we have done to this point, this stuff is starting to cash out in, in not only the things that we can know about God, but in terms of how that matters in terms of the way we live and, and what, kinds of, what kinds of communities that we're called to build. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a heads up that next year, when we're in Romans chapter 12 to 16, Really, all of that section has to do with kind of specific application type stuff. So I know some folks uh, are especially eager for that, and you will be, you will be satisfied uh, having, having laid all this groundwork. There's a lot that we can do. My mic's a little hot. Can you turn this down a bit? Great, thanks. So um, in, in this week, uh, what we're going to see is Paul telling us about this plan that God had up his sleeve. You remember when we looked at chapter 9, we saw that God was not unjust. And in chapter 10, we saw that God was not unavailable. And here in 11, Paul is demonstrating that God is not unfaithful. In fact, as he is laying out for us, uh, God has had a plan all along, and it involves envy. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm an Israelite myself, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Oh, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And what did God say back to him? Look, Elijah, I've reserved 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so, too, in the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So what then? Did Israel fail to obtain what it sought so earnestly? Well, the elect did obtain it, but the others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. 
And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. But rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life dead. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root's holy, so are the branches. As you'll remember, Paul is an Israelite, and he's writing to a church in Rome that's got both Jews and Gentiles in it. And we've seen various places in his letter, he's addressed himself to one or the other of those communities uh, within the church in Rome. And here he starts uh, on a tear where, where for uh, a few weeks we're going to be looking at him and what he specifically is saying here to the Gentiles. But he's explaining the nature of his ministry. He, you know, in some ways the last guy you would expect to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was a, a Pharisee, a highly, highly accomplished uh, young man in a hurry. He was, uh, he tells us elsewhere, he was advancing far beyond uh, others of his age in terms of his zeal for religion and his achievement uh, among the, uh, the religious leadership. In fact, Paul was on a mission to try to straighten out some of these crazy people who were worshiping this Jesus guy as though he were God, thought they were, he was Messiah. And he was off on his way to Damascus where he had heard about a band of them. He was going to go root them out and try to straighten them up. Well, as it turns out, God encounters him on the road to Damascus, and he has this dramatic experience of Jesus saying, I'm the one that you're persecuting. I mean, you, you think you're being zealous for God. You think that you are doing my work. Actually, you are working exactly against me. And so you would expect then that Paul would be the ideal apostle to the Jews, right? I mean, he's Pharisee of Pharisees, he can, he can argue Torah with the best of them, but God in his wisdom sends him primarily to be an apostle to the Gentiles, planting churches among those who are not Jews. You read the book of Acts, his, his pattern is he shows up in a town, he goes to the synagogue, he starts preaching about Jesus, he gets kicked out, beaten up, and then he ends up primarily then being able to teach to Gentiles and any Jews that are willing to risk being seen with Paul. And so he's founding throughout the Mediterranean basin, throughout the Roman Empire, he's founding these new churches that have both Jews and Gentiles in them, but many of them, and Rome is probably one, were more, far more Gentiles than Jews in them. And what Paul is working through here in Romans 9 to 11 is this consternation, this sense of frustration that Paul has that his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, have not received Jesus as Messiah. 
this is, Paul says, this is Israel's Messiah who has come, the one true God of Israel has sent him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come. And yet, as John says, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Paul is dealing with a situation where most of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus and are continuing to. And so we get a little glimpse here of Paul's heart. And we see it in a couple places here in 9 to 11. Remember at the beginning of chapter 9 when he says, I, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I mean, I could wish that I were cut off, cursed for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. And he talks about how much, uh, how many blessings the Jewish people have and what, what it means to be Israel. And, and he says at the beginning of chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And here he says, you know, Inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Literally, I glorify my ministry. Why? Well, yeah, he cares about Gentiles coming to faith. But he's also hoping that he can provoke his own people, his fellow Jews, to envy and thus to save some of them. And what Paul is alluding to is this pattern that we see all through Scripture that God works through peoples. Yes, he works through people, but he also works through peoples. Go back to Genesis in chapter 12. After the flood with Russell Crowe, you have this scene where God calls this guy named Abram. Yahweh says, leave your country, your people, your father's household, Go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God isn't just blessing Abram so that Abram can enjoy a nice relationship with God and he's not doing that just so that his people, his descendants can have a terrific relationship with the one true God of the universe. No, God is on a mission of cosmic reconciliation. He says, here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to pick this one guy and his whole family, this, na this people, this nation that's going to basically come into existence out of what seems to be nothing. I am going to use this as my vehicle for blessing the whole world, for drawing the whole world back into the relationship with myself and with one another, and with their own consciences, and with creation, all the things that we had at the beginning that were trashed through human sin. And so in the beginning of, of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, this is the people who are, the people of Israel have been rescued from slavery. Charlton Heston does the whole parting the sea bit, and, and they're getting ready to go into the land that God has promised them. And he says to them, Speaking through Moses here, I hear now, Israel, the decrees and the laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you. Don't add to what I command you. Don't subtract from it, but keep the commands of Yahweh, your God, that I give you. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as Yahweh, my God, commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. 
God has not only given his people freedom, liberated them from slavery, he is not only giving them a place to live and a place to, to flourish and prosper, he is giving them his Torah, his, his law, his words of instruction as to how they can live. He's basically given them a blueprint for an entire new society so that they can live well. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to whom? To the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of Torah that I'm setting before you today? The idea is God is creating his people, uh, calling his people to be a living advertisement for what it means to follow him, to be his people. And he puts them in the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Delaware, You have to go through where God put his people if you want to get anywhere in the major trade routes of the time. And instead of collecting tolls and dropping the speed limit to 55 and putting cops every 10 feet, they're called to live out what it means to be Yahweh's people. And again, the idea is not just so that they can have it good, although they will. The idea is that they will live in such a way that everybody who is coming by, everybody who is coming through is going to say, what have they got that I don't got? And you get this, a picture of this in, uh, in, during the monarchy when Solomon dedicates the temple. Solomon, David's son, he's the guy who did the whole thing with the babies or made like he was going to. He was clever. As he's dedicating the temple, he says, as for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people, Israel, he's, Solomon's praying here, as for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. People are going to, Solomon says, people are going to come to this place from the ends of the earth because they will have heard about Yahweh. They've heard about his power. And so when this foreigner comes, Solomon says, when he comes and he prays toward this temple, he's not even going to be able to come into it because he's a foreigner after all. But when he gets as close to it as he can and he prays toward it, then hear from heaven, Solomon asks God, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I've built bears your name. There's always been this sense that what God calls his people to is not just to be faithful to him for the sake of being faithful to him, and not just to be faithful to him for the sake of living well themselves, but that this is part of the way that God is going to draw all people to himself. And naturally, I can't think about this without thinking of Ezekiel, as I know is the case with so many of you. You look in in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I know some of those pages are going to be falling out of your Bible at that point. Starting in verse 17, remember Ezekiel is the prophet who has been sent off into exile. He was a priest, got sent to exile in Babylon, out of a job. You can't be a priest unless you're at the temple. 
No temple, no priest. Ezekiel is with God's people in a wetlands reclamation project, which is a polite way of saying that they were filling in swamps for the Babylonians. So again, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they'd shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are Yahweh's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I mean, so God's saying by that point, people knew who Yahweh was, and they knew that he had a people, and they knew that he had his turf. And instead of honoring and glorifying God's name, they ended up profaning it. So I had concern for my rep, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they'd gone. So say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord Yahweh says. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But it's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. And I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. This is kind of hitting this point over and over again. This must have been embarrassing. Then the nations will know that I'm Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I'll gather you back from all the countries. I'll bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You'll live in the land I gave your forefathers. You'll be my people, and I will be your God. I'll save you from all your uncleanness. I'll call for the grain and make it plentiful. I won't bring famine upon you like I did. I'll increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. And then you'll remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds. You'll loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know, once again, I am not doing this for you. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord Yahweh says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They're going to say, this land that was laid waste, wow, this has become like the Garden of Eden. Those cities that were lying in ruins, they were desolate and destroyed, they're, they're now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations around you that remain will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt what was destroyed, and I have replanted what was desolate. I, Yahweh, has spoken, and I will do it. And this is what the Lord Yahweh says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I'll make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings in Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, 
so will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people, and then they will know that I am Yahweh. Who's the they? Everybody. God's own people, Israel, will know, and the nations will know. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. So here God's saying, even though this people profaned my name, even though they dishonored me, even though they, they made me look bad, I am nevertheless going to restore them and take care of them so that, again, it's really not about them. It's about my reputation. It's about demonstrating my power and my might and my greatness. One more from the prophets before we get to the last, this chapter 8 of Zechariah, we get the same kind of scene. This is now, Zechariah is a prophet who's writing after the exile, after God has begun to bring his people back to the land. And, and he says, this is what Yahweh, the Lord of angel armies, says, I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I'll bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They'll be my people. I'll be faithful and righteous to them as their God. And this is what Yahweh, the God of hosts, says, You who now hear these words spoken by the prophets, you who were there when the foundation was laid for the, the house of Yahweh of hosts, let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. Before that time, there were no wages for men or beast. Nobody could go about his business safely because of the enemy. It was a terrible time. I had turned every man against his neighbor, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past declares Yahweh of hosts. I'm gonna, the seed's going to grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, the heaven will drop their dew. I'm going to give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. And as you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and Israel, so will I save you, and you'll be a blessing. Think about it. It's not nice to think about it, but think about the places that you would maybe not want to live, right? Oh, my gosh, they're from, uh, right? Imagine that place suddenly being the most wonderful place you can imagine. This is what, what God's saying. You, got, you guys should have been a cause for blessing, but you became a curse. Well, now I'm going to make you a blessing again. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. This is what the Lord of hosts says, just as I determined to bring disaster upon you and showed you no pity when your fathers angered me, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Don't be afraid. These are the things that you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgments in your courts. Don't plot evil against your neighbor. Don't love to swear falsely. I hate all that stuff, says Yahweh. Love truth and peace. And this is what the Lord of hosts says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. The inhabitants of one city will go to one another and say, hey, let's go right away to entreat Yahweh and seek Yahweh of hosts. I myself am going. It sounds like an AM radio ad, doesn't it? it it's in the prophets. People want to go. That's what Zechariah is saying. People are going to, from all over, they're going to say, we've got to go and check this out. Many people, powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek Yahweh of hosts and to entreat him. And this is what Yahweh of hosts says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. This 
is how it's supposed to go. And it's not just true for Israel, as in the people of, the, of Israel in the Old Testament. This is also true for us, God's people, the church. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, one of the most famous of the famous last words. In John 17, Jesus prays, My prayer is not for my disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one I in them and you in me may they be brought to complete unity so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me what this means is that the integrity of our community the health of our community. It's not just about us. I mean, it's important for the sake of us having a healthy church that we have unity, but it's not just about having a healthy church. It's not even just about glorifying God by being a healthy church. The unity of our body is a testimony to the fact that God sent Jesus. The integrity of our witness in the community where God has placed us has a lot to do with the integrity of the community that we have here. And this is a place where, frankly, I have to say, we are doing great. Unless I'm completely missing something. When I talk to my colleagues about New Hope, one of the first things I'll say is it's a healthy church. People treat each other well. People care for each other. When people come, and we've had several guest preachers recently, you know, rabbis, ministers, scholars, they always comment about the fact that they can tell that the Spirit is present here and that this is a church of people who love God and who love each other. I'm dressed up because this afternoon I'm going to a, a retirement luncheon for my friend Judy Meltzer. Judy's the director of education at Kizikamuna, one of the megagogs down by the Beltway. And she loves coming here. In fact, we may see more of her now that she's retiring. She loves to come. She loves it when our people show up at things that she's at when we were doing the ICJS, the, the uh, Reclaiming the Center program, and a, a dozen of us from New Hope came to that, she always went to Jilly's with us afterward because she liked hanging out with us. It definitely was not for the quality of the food at Jilly's. But she, and she always, when, when I see her, she'll ask about people in our community that she's gotten to know. 
And so as we look at what it means for us to be one, to be united, to have unity as a body, and we're going to be looking a lot at that in these last several months of Romans, it, it feels like we've been through that, doesn't it? I think we have to bear in mind that it's not just about behaving right, and it's not just about the things that we should and shouldn't do, and the ways we should and shouldn't treat each other, and what God will or won't be pleased by. The integrity of our witness in the place that God has placed has a lot to do with the integrity of our community. God's reputation is on the line. Why he entrusts that to us, that's as great a mystery as any other. But he does. That's how he does it. He works through people. He calls the people to be his people, and he calls us to represent him so that the world may know. So that they may know that there is a strong and powerful and mighty God who is able to triumph so that they will know that he has sent his Messiah to deal once and for all with sin who has been raised from the dead as a validation of everything he said about himself. That's the mission we're on. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that our community would be the kind of community that makes people want to know what we have that they don't. We pray that you would be growing us to be a people in this time and place where you have us for your faithful servants who demonstrate, who live out what it means be your people in such a way that we provoke our neighbors to jealousy that they want what we have. We pray that this would be not only for the edification of your people for your delight, but we pray that this would be a way that you are reconciling the world to yourself by drawing people from every tongue including especially your beloved children of Israel to the knowledge and love of you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, it's, uh, it's a great sermon.